and welcome to Climbing Consulting. Today's episode is another first for the podcast. Well, actually, it's two firsts in one. You asked me for more guests from the big four, and you also asked me to get some guests on from the strategy end of consulting, and I've done both with one guest. Today's guest is David Lancefield. David is a partner in Strategy and PwC. He is co-lead of Growth and Digital at PwC, people partner for consulting and deal strategy, and a member of the Strategy and PwC Economics Group leadership team. In addition to all of this, David is a TEDx speaker and has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, Huffington Post, Financial Times, and numerous other publications. He's also the host of his own podcast, Transformation Talks, which is where I first heard David, and I'd highly recommend checking it out. David's approach and outlook are hugely refreshing and something that anyone with aspirations of making partners should take note of. If you want to get a flavor for his thoughts and approach, you can check him out on Twitter at DLancefield and see the thought-provoking posts he puts out on a daily basis. David has a huge amount of experience and shares so many great insights in this conversation, including the importance of being yourself at work and what that means for both project managers and project team members, how to make partner in a big four firm and the common mistakes that those who fail to get there make and what holds them back, and the importance of developing and managing your personal brand as a consultant, both within and outside your firm. Having listened to the first episode of David's Transformation Talks, I thought this was going to be a good interview, and I have to say it exceeded all of my expectations. In-depth, actionable advice from a senior leader in one of the world's biggest consulting firms. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Good to see you. How are you doing, Nick? I'm very well. It's a lovely day here in London, looking yeah. out over, or as I passed the, the corridor, looking out over Tower Bridge. I used to live in Wapping, not far away, so it's, it's lovely to be back. How are you doing? Yeah, very good. I'm happy Friday. Happy, happy every day. It's not just happy Friday. <laughs> Talking of which, I love your tip for getting free coffee and pret. It sounds very simple, but... Yeah, it's not that I go in there expecting free coffee, and I'm not suggesting, by the way, that as a result, everybody will do it. But I think a lot of us sort of walk around when we're... Especially, we're, bit, we're all busy people, right? And you go into these places, and you head down in your phone, and you actually ask somebody for something. You haven't even got any sort of eye contact. You haven't smiled. So occasionally, actually looking at them, having a conversation is nice. <laughs> and occasionally, they just do... You know, they give you a nice, nice coffee. I don't do it for that, but it's mm. called a bit of human connection rather than phone connection. <laughs> As I was telling you, I've, I've just left London. I mean, driving to work has brought up a whole new number of challenges, but I did forget the gauntlet you face on, on a London commute of people looking at their phones head down and, like you say, having to dodge them. I think if and when we have children, I'll tell them to be neck doctors. <laughs> but I want to come to, to something that I think summarizes that life philosophy, because I think it's a good starting point to, to really explore. And it was just, I think, a throwaway line you put on Twitter, which is funny how by giving things a go, being yourself and, and seeing the good in people, it, it makes life a touch easier, makes life more enjoyable. It'd be great to start by actually just what prompted you to, to post that and, and what that means to you? Yeah, so there were just a few sort of discussions that day where I was with people I liked, didn't necessarily agree with everything they were saying, but I could sort of feel that I was in, there were certain moments where I could express myself, play to sort of what strength, the strengths I have, and I sort of didn't need to force it. 
And I think sometimes consciously or subconsciously, we sort of have masks on our face mm. and or we act differently to who we are. doesn't mean we can't sort of act with more skill and learn, but sometimes we're sort of trying to pretend to be somebody. And actually, at the time, you probably don't notice. Mm. Uh, but actually, when you look at the end of the end of the day, end of the week, you think, oh, God, I'm just, that's just, it's not good energy. And so it doesn't always mean you're successful. So doing what you described as sort of being yourself and so on, sometimes you get, it's not about doing that and therefore you have the biggest impact, but it means that actually over time you can be yourself and you can actually enjoy yourself. Over time, I think that is successful. It often means, because sometimes you do need to obviously bridge between different styles, different ways of working, and it doesn't mean you, you're stubborn. But I remember, I mean, as a, as, a, as a new partner when I was 32, and I say that just not to brag, but just in terms of age, that's relatively young, I, I definitely was putting on a bit of a mask, unconsciously, because I thought I had to play like an older person. And actually, it's quite tiring. I thought, sorry, this is me. Whether you like it or not, this is me. How do you think that challenge changes as you, whether it's the rungs of the, the consulting firm or, the, or age, you know? How does that challenge change? I mean, you, you, I assume, now advise younger people in the business. You've got people probably from 21 up to people just below you. How do you find that challenge either differs or is the same throughout those steps? We have people who are younger. We have 17, 18-year-olds who have a great apprentice scheme that oh, okay. we're very proud of. I think the key thing is sort of it's an ongoing learning. You do get, you do see people at certain ages, you know, 50, 60 and so on, and I see some people who are like, oh, I'm really proud. I'm amazing. I'm really good. And effectively, they've been peddling the same wares for many years and often very successfully. Mm. But sometimes you sort of, if that goes, whatever they do, it goes out of vogue. They can quite easily themselves <laughs> go out of vogue. But some of the, you also see people of that age and beyond who just have a vitality. They're, they're curious. Curiosity is a big thing in consulting or any, any career. They're curious about the people around them. They get energy from, and they always have a certain humility, which is sort of, I don't know the answer all the time. And actually, they ask more questions. And it's often the people who are too proud or think they're amazing or successful that actually just talk at people. And it has an impact. But over time, you realize that actually, have you learned anything over the last few years? Have you had new experiences? Have you been with different people? No, you've effectively been in your own sort of cocoon. The point you touch on there around talking about the leader lens there, I guess the there is a sort of question in here that says, well, I'd love to be myself, but I, don't know, I work in a big firm and just I look at the senior leadership and they're all quite stiff. Or I work in whatever size firm or wherever and everyone looks the same, everyone does the same thing. I don't want to dress slightly differently or come across slightly differently, if, even if that is, to your point, you know, that is myself, because it will be seen, it could be career limiting. How much of this is about those at the, the the sort of junior end pushing for that versus those at the senior end creating that culture yeah it's a really it's a really great question it's really it's really complicated because at the one level all of the people at the top where you know there are diversity issues we have it um, and diversity we tend to talk about visible diversity but it's diversity is much more than gender race sexuality it's about diversity of expression style but you know, we've come a long way. I think I'm quite proud we're in a reasonably progressive organisation. I think rarely they do things um, consciously to say you must act in this way. But I think sometimes you have to go that extra sort of step. And I don't mean you have to suddenly dress radically differently on a certain day. But sometimes you have to call it out and mm. say, you know what, just because I do it this way doesn't mean you have to. So I think you have to go that extra step. I think the people who are coming through the business, in some ways, 
there's something about if you do things with a smile and a spring in your step and you do it in your own way, actually you, you, you have much more permission than you think. And I don't underestimate the perceived barriers. Oh, I don't see anybody like me or they're all a bit stiff or different and so on. Actually, when you get to know them, people are much more different than you'd expect. So as I've disclosed a little bit about my story, both professionally and personally, and I'm quite careful about what I disclose, it's amazing the number of people who I thought were very different from me, and I had nothing to, they sort of say, you know, quiet word in the corner as you're talking to them, they say, yeah, I've had that similar experience. So it's like, but you do, you have to, I think, disclose strategically, if you like, disclose a little bit of yourself in order to encourage others, and then sometimes be brave. And frankly, there comes a time when in any organisation, if you find that what who you are and what you do isn't congruent to a, what, whatever you see or sense as a prevailing mood or a culture, then you face a choice. Live in it, feel a bit uncomfortable sometimes, hopefully feel it changes, or do something else. Life's too short, right? So I agree with you fully on that, on that last point. It's an interesting challenge there, though, and maybe it's at the stage of life I am. I, everyone used to talk about midlife crises. Now I think the quarter-life crisis is the new thing. I think technology is making things faster. And I know a number of people who are at that juncture of, actually, I don't really enjoy what I do, or I'm looking up the tree and I, I don't want to be where that person is in 10 years' time. But actually, then there's a whole number of social pressures around, well, I've got a good salary and I need to go out for lunch every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, etc. And actually, has anyone ever come to you with that challenge? Yeah, all the time, yeah. And it's very personal. So you can, I can maybe draw out a few themes. Every individual is, and it sounds really glib, but I mean, is their situation, their mindset is much more different than when people say, oh, you work in the city, you work for PwC, you work for this company, and hence you must think like that. I get really irritated by that, actually. Mm. because actually, how, do, how do they think you should think out of interest? Well, they tend to think, oh, you're a type A individual, hero leader, hero person, f- succeeded all your life, everything's perfect, you, you, you want to accelerate all the time, do things fast, better, and so on. And actually, mm. well, no that's not just not true because they only see you through one lens and actually don't get to know you but going back to your your question there's two things which is one is if you're not enjoying what you do day to day the question is how by you changing tack changing style changing approach trying something new can you actually meaningfully change it and actually the good thing about a consulting industry is it should be an entrepreneurial place so if you have a great idea and clients i hate that word but i need to find a new word client it's very proprietary isn't it client um, <laughs> but clients if they clients love it and people get around you you can actually create new businesses and and products and so on that's brilliant if however by trying it and trying to do something different you actually find that you're not enjoying it i think i would counsel against saying i don't want to be like that person because you probably don't know them that well. Mm. Secondly, the, by the time you get there, the business and the individuals will have changed radically. So I would counsel against that. I think ultimately you have to sort of work out what's you know genuinely important. And for p- different people, having money, having a flash lifestyle is important. And that's fine. That's up to them. But you sort of have to call it out because you, you have to actually make some choices. I'm a strategist. You have to make some choices. It's rare to have it all. Very rare. You mentioned when you started the answer that while there aren't obviously every case is individual that there are some common trends or common themes if you were having to summarize those what are the reoccurring if there are themes that you see from those sort of conversations so there's a theme around sort of personal brand so people who are progressing in the organization that sort of they you know they do great projects they do great work and they have a nice reputation but if they're trying to either move it into a different industry or a new area actually their brand is often only understood by a small group of people. 
And if they want to start being more of a maker, sort of making business rather than mm. just sort of taking it, i.e., you know, we have projects here and we have a business, go and be the project manager to actually leading a business, you actually have to create your own personal brand. And that's not just on social media, but that's sort of how you come across, how your colleagues know you. And I would say a lot of people just don't know where to start. Now, we're trying to address that through you know, role models and training. But mm. sort of what is my personal brand? And it's much more complex than people think because people see you in different lights. Oh, I saw you at that meeting. I saw you write that, present that. I've seen that analysis. People are interested in lots of different lenses and you sort of have to cater for it. At the same time, and this is a bit of advice I got from a colleague a few months ago, he said I was a little bit complex, which is right. So you're a bit yeah, complex. Yeah, I'm a bit complex. Okay. And I don't mean that to be so I'm clever, and, but it's like because I do quite a few things. I help companies grow. Mm. I've done quite a lot in the policy area for government and, and regulators, um, helping companies grow effectively. He's like, well, you do quite a lot of things. Well, I, sort of need to, I need my one-liner. David does X. And so personal brand is one is definitely one theme. The other one is sort of where to go next. What are your choices? People think, sort of think, oh, I've done that type of work. People in, in this, this industry in particular are highly curious, pretty energetic, and sort of want to keep moving. They want variety. That's the main reason I came into consulting mm. a number of years ago. They want variety of experience, but they get stuck. I've been working with that organization for a long time or that industry. It's like, what are my choices? And often, the, again, the choices are too narrow. Choices are, oh, I'll go and work with that another organization, which is actually quite adjacent. What about going and doing a secondment? What about moving overseas? What about doing something else? And so sometimes you have to sort of just take a step back and take a sort of, if you like, a complete view of them and all the opportunities. And is that, just on that choices point, is that the choices they are given or is that the choices they perceive they have? It's a bit of both. So I think sometimes as a business and industry, we can be better at, if you like, framing the choices. So there are many times where you do realize that X, Y, and Z opportunities are coming up and there's just a deluge of information. Mm. That's the challenge for any consultancy, really. It's like there's so much information, knowledge capture is so difficult. You need somebody around you who has a different lens to you and actually point you in, in, in certain directions. At the same time, you sort of have to create a little bit of space in your own daily life to actually think and reflect. We're running around so fast that if you are thinking about your next choice of what to move, you can't do that when you're racing around. And if you look at people's, this is one of my hobby horses, you look at people's days, and I include many of my own, and people tend to measure their success by how busy they are, mm. how many hours they put on the clock, and how present they are. FaceTime, we are dominated in this industry by presence and process. Right? What about impact? What about the day where you actually had one hour, where you just had an amazing idea, or you had an amazing impact? Uh, which could have actually been better than three weeks' work. Now, it is shifting, but a bit like sports people and musicians and others, you need to rest sometimes. And you then need to peak at certain moments, you know, the pitch, the presentation, the, the complex of brainstorming you're doing, whatever. But if you're always on, and if you're working 12, 14 hours, 15 hours a day longer sometimes, and more than five days a week, I mean, would a sports person do that? No, they'd get injured and they wouldn't perform. That's one of the things in the consulting industry we need to change. And as a result, if you're always on, you often make bad decisions or your world becomes narrower and hence you don't see the potential. Yeah, and I, I love sporting analogies, mainly because I'm terrible with other analogies and you know, played a little bit of very poor amateur sport when I was younger. But I, I think you're, you're completely right. You, know, you wouldn't go to the gym seven days a week for five hours a day, nor do professional athletes or the World Cup team you saw you know, did very well. It'll come home next time. But 
you saw a lot of their training sessions were actually more fun than you know serious football because they knew when they needed to focus and outside of that they took downtime the point there around I'll come back to the personal brand point if we have time, because I think it's a massive area. I just, um, my last guest was um, a woman called Natalia Vihovsky, who's a personal branding expert. Huge area, fascinating lady. Um, If we have time to go into that, I will. But I want to pick up on the point there around actually doing what you enjoy and particularly at work and finding your sweet spot. Because I know this is something you've talked about that, look, if you find your sweet spot and work in it, you will do better. You will be better for the firm. And that will help your career. That'll help the firm. I guess to the same point around, it it comes back to that same challenge around finding what you want to do as a career, which is, okay, maybe I am great at facilitating workshop, but the project needs an Excel modeler, or it needs someone who can crank out 10 process maps on Visio. So today I am crank, or for the next month, I'm cranking out Visio. How do you counsel your teams to actually share with you what that sweet spot is so that you know how to best utilize them and tell their managers without seeming it's not a great word, but high maintenance, you know, without seeming, mm-hmm. oh, that guy will only do that type of work. Yeah, there's lots of there's lots of different ways and you sort of need to do quite a few things. So there's some people are very effective in whether it's sort of presentations or what we have sort of lunch and learns, mm. sort of those sessions where, yes, they're sharing knowledge, but actually what they're sending is a message is, is I'm really passionate about X. So mm. there's, a, there's a signaling effect. There's also, frankly, systems and, and knowledge capture where you can actually call out your strengths now some people do use them we all roll our eyes and go oh that doesn't work no i mean people who are running projects and so on do use them and, and they call out particular strengths and particular things so like crms or yeah um, the equivalent or yeah. knowledge knowledge systems yeah um, and actually they are used so that's that's another thing then there's a conversation at the beginning of projects and in what we call our people management process which is appraisal and coaching where we are moving more to a strengths-based culture which means that yes you should be clear about what you need to improve but actually you can call out and articulate and in a serious way, not just a flippant way. You know, some people like talking about their strengths and feel uncomfortable. Right? So when were you, when your best self, if you like, Dan Cable talks about this, yeah. his best self. So when you were your best, what was it? And actually it's a proper meaningful conversation rather than a sort of glib remark. So beginning your project, when you're at your best self and you can express yourself and be, what is it and what do we need to do? The act of doing it means that during the project, people are more likely to call out if there's a dissonance between the two. Now, I'm not naive to suggest you can't get that sweet spot all the time because there's often things you need to do on projects or work. But over time, if through all those different aspects you can call out what what you love doing, people do begin to listen. And it's pull, right? The thing about consultants is you can have structures and processes and systems, but if people do amazing things, the word gets around very quickly, Mm. even in a global network. And if you take that same same challenge from the other end, so you know that's for juniors who are wanting to share that sweet spot with with sort of project leads, partners, etc. What if you're looking at it from the other end? Because you have different challenges. You know, if you are a new partner, let's say, and you have to, you've got a sales target, you need to sell work, and you need bodies in that work to deliver. How how should you be looking out for this and using your people what are the challenges in this respect that people come to you about that you counsel them on so we all have sort of good pressure and challenging pressure which is sort of i need to show return Mm. tomorrow it's funny how in most of my cases where you haven't felt you needed to win something you're more successful either because you're busy or you're or you're just in a good place Mm. so something about you know not saying that that pressure is not there but getting into a place hey you're really good sort of in a way relax breathe 
all those sorts of things. Uh, and that, that's, that's quite important because then you make good choices and you're, you tend to look around more. So something about the sort of psychology of how you feel. And actually, that's not, again, a soft skill. That's really hard. Because when you are thinking about the KPIs and you get the emails coming through, you've got to start backing yourself. And we have new partners who've just come through literally right now, and they've got exactly that pressure. So, okay, let's look at your pipeline. Let's look at your relationships. And you actually go through it methodically and say, and have you done this before? Yes, I have. Okay, so you're good. That's, so, that's, you know, so that's one thing. The other one is we are, and I'm trying to do a much bigger job on getting a genuine diversity of view. So what, when consultancies don't do a good job generally for clients, it's when the client says, I've got this problem or opportunity, I need some help. It comes to an individual, that individual then puts around a team of mini-me's and they deliver it. And they'll probably do a pretty good job, but they won't have covered all the angles. So we're looking at how do you combine strategists to sort of data, data scientists to technologists to ex- user experience people. And frankly, it's much more enjoyable. It's pretty hard work sometimes because mm. they think and act differently. But you tend to deliver much, much greater impact rather than and a greater experience along the way for the client and for the teams mm. rather than just an output, right? Consultants, it's like you create a, power, you know, a prototype rather than PowerPoint. Um, but that it does take a curious mind and it also you have to take a few risks. Yeah. On that point around bringing people together, how have you done that? Or looking back, what are the steps that have assuming it is now successful, made that successful. Because to your point, if you look at the sort of cliched personality types of people in those different areas, you you naturally get a tension, a differing of perspective, which brings the positivity you've highlighted, but can be very hard work to get everyone to play nicely together. Yes, I think the framing, so there's sort of, when you're starting something up on a project, there is something about giving people the space to both, as I say, express who they are, how they work, how they think, and actually talk about it. So rather than the rush briefing for half an hour saying, here's the milestone, go off and do it on a half-baked sort of briefing, you actually have to spend a number of hours mm. like building a house. Right? But you've got to create some foundations. Um, and then I think you have to, if you like, take some risks by saying, okay, you take the pen, you take the, you take the floor. But I think you also have to set some values, which means that it's okay to disagree, it's okay to think differently, and that's actually good in many ways, but you, there is respect that's needed. And actually, there's a sort of level setting of, I sort of don't care exactly where your background is because the team is more important. And so it's not just a free-for-all. It's not just, oh, let's just randomly do X, Y, and Z. I think the leader needs to sort of say, hey, you have to have genuine curiosity. You have to listen, listen properly. And listen not just, uh, if you like, just because you're waiting your turn to make your point. And so and that's, that's quite difficult, again, given the pressured environment. And there are a lot of the challenges, you know, often you're working in really short timescales. And, and I still think you can do that because you can actually save time later. Second thing is, if you're always working to short timescales, you should be thinking about the business you, you're running because you're probably on the receiving end of, pretty, of bad, you know, bad business. But those are two separate topics. Sadly, I don't think we'll have time to go into it, but it, it's a, a great takeoff. If you're always busy or it's always a struggle, are you doing the right thing at a strategic level? To your point there, you know, if you're always on the receiving end of short deadlines, is there something structurally wrong? You know, what's the root cause of that? I guess is the well, are you, you know, frankly, are you pricing? If you think about the fundamentals, are you pricing it right? Have you got the right brand? Are you creating the right pool? Are you creating the impact? The other thing I, on business is, if you've got a great business and you create, you should be thinking about succession. And, you know, it's all the glib words with succession and everything. It's like, it's, okay, if you're doing something really, really well and it's working, at some point you should be looking at your next adventure. Mm. That's really hard 
because you say, oh, hey, I'm really riding a wave. How long do you ride? And actually, some of the most successful people I've, I've learned from, both within this organization and some of my clients, is they've actually stepped off earlier than you'd think and actually brought in others to sort of take on the next step of the business because actually their skill is, is coming up with a new business and idea, scaling it up. It's not at the maturing end. That's a different type of person. Do you see what I mean? So I, I've set up a few business when I was leading the economics group here. I probably could have led it for an, you know, a year or two more. Mm. But actually what I, I think I'm good at is creating something new, sparking the fires under people and then sort of getting it going. I'm probably not as good at the sort of operational management as others. And hence I wanted to then go and look at my next my next thing. Yeah, and that's I guess the idea anyway. It definitely wasn't perfectly executed, <laughs> but it, that was the idea. I guess that comes back to your point there around that sweet spot, what you're good at, and knowing that. Because if you don't know you're good at that bit, you might stay and keep it too long and to a detriment to yourself. And also, and you a- can't work it out yourself, right? So you you have to have you have to be somebody who's willing and able and signals to people that you want to take feedback. So the classic boring oh, let's sit down once a year and have feedback, which dominates most consultancies and it still happens. I think you've got to signal to people that, hey, if they've got an idea, a problem, a bugbear, a thought for you, mm. they can just tell you in the moment. Yes, there are moments where you want to reflect you know, more deeply about yourself, but there's something about, okay, let's be open to it. That's one of the things I've done badly, I think, in my, my career often, where unconsciously people say, oh, you're, you're really busy, so I can't, you know, I can't possibly do X. And I'm... My face doesn't look busy, but mm. because I try and I don't want to overwork, I've got other things in my life. I, I my days are quite full, but I've sent the message, which is I'm not I'm not open. Sometimes you need people around you who are kind enough and close enough to say you do. You know what? Everybody think can't get hold of you. How did you? So because that's a bit of a catch twenty two, I guess is if you are in that time and you are giving off the vibe of being too busy, people won't come and tell you, David. I think you're being a bit, you know, you're not approachable. Was it warning signs you noticed in yourself? Or was it a colleague came over and said, you've got to sort this out? No, it wasn't It wasn't a particular moment. I wouldn't say it's a massive issue, but it's just a few times where people get saying, oh, I didn't reach out to you because of X, Y, and Z. And I say, well, I didn't say any of that. And then you look at how you're sort of, you just take a moment, and this is a challenge from any consultants who work at client site or client premises, and they, they're only in the office for a... The question I'd have is, Firstly, do you need to work at client site so much? This dominant thing of do you need to be there? Where often clients don't want you there, or not as much. Mm. So it's how, how do you work? And there's often a dominant logic of I must be there Monday to Thursday or Monday to Friday, which is nonsense. Or it may be right, but you've got to test it. So that's one thing. But secondly, when you are in your office with your colleagues, how do you act? Do you actually come in, sit down, headphones on, work continually, or do you actually just take a moment, and I don't do this that, that well actually, but take a moment for five or ten minutes just to walk around and say, hi, how are you doing? Those small acts, I've watched people do it, those small acts send a message of, hey, I'm here. It's like smiling at Pret, I guess. <laughs> You're not going to let me get away with No, no, I, I, there was no... Sorry. Right, we're going to move on No, no, that I didn't. If that, if that came across <laughs> as sarcastic, it wasn't intended to, because I do... Like I said before, having left London for a place where people smile, and I've, I've just offended. There's ten- lots of people in London who smile. There are but not but, enough on the underground. But yes, and you know, yeah, there, there I'm sure are a lot. But there's sadly on my commute, there are a lot more trying to run into me with their phone in their hand, stab me with their iPhone. Um, on that point, though, around feedback, and and we'll move on after this. Is who should you be seeking feedback from? And this is a loaded question. In let's take your case. You're a senior partner here. You're known around the firm, you're known outside of the firm. 
I'm sure junior people, let's take let's take your 18-year-old apprentices. You know, they will have seen your photo, they've probably heard you speak at a talk, and they go, Oh, I could never go and talk to David. He'll, you know, look how senior he is. I'm going to ask it because I, th I think I know the answer. And it's should you be seeking feedback from juniors? And if so, how do you create the environment where your 18-year-old apprentice feels comfortable coming up to you and giving you that feedback? It's hilarious. You said you were going to ask the question, but you know the answer. That's brilliant. I love that. I'm being cheeky back. The, um, <laughs> so firstly, I think we have a culture where people are encouraged from sort of day one and before where uh, they will they will call out anything that they want. So it's sort of, it's not a hierarchical culture, unlike mm. say some corporates where you sort of, or some other firms where, you know, you're, you're spoken to, you, you know, you speak when you're spoken to. Uh, and actually that's quite for some people who are coming into consultancy from say corporate roles, having apprentices, graduates and say, saying, you know what, I was in that meeting, you didn't make much sense. And they do with the smile, but it's, it's quite candid. It's quite a shock. So it's part of that culture. I think secondly, in how you sort of talk, present, discuss, in how the words you use and the sentiment you give actually can send some real signals. So actually, if sometimes you say, you know what, I don't, I don't know the answer to this question. Mm. I'm finding it really hard. By saying things like that, which obviously have to be genuine, you are actually implicitly saying to people, you tell me. I think secondly, you I think you can be more proactive and actually ask people. So you're having the end of again a colleague of mine interviewed this a number of years ago. Very simple trick at the end of every big meeting or presentation, rather than just doing the classic thing, well, oh, we're finished, we're amazing, great, run on to the next thing. Quick huddle, right? Wherever it was, obviously, you know, if it's confidential in a private place, saying, How do we do? What do you think? Go on, tell me. So you actually get looking at your day, stopping and pausing and actually asking for the feedback. Then there are actually more formal mechanisms that are still important. The act of doing, we get 360-degree feedback and it goes to everyone and it's very well publicised, is an important foundation. But you sort of need both. That on its own is not enough, similarly in the moment, because there will be people who actually, and I'll give you, if I just have one moment, when I took some time out from April to April last year to January, I took a few, I need some time around, you know, what do people like, dislike, what should I do next? I picked people I didn't know the answer from. So rather than talking to people I worked with for 10, 20 years and saying, hey, what do you think I should do? What's my next role? And so on. I would probably, you know, nine times out of 10, probably guess what they were going to say. I picked people where I knew them, but I didn't, they were sufficiently distant or different from me. And as a result, the feedback was much higher quality. I think too many people pick people they are comfortable with. I mean, I've done feedback. I've got to feedback for 10, 15 people, and they're all just mates. That is just, that is, that is just doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, no, so I'm, I'm laughing because I have seen that more so in client organizations, but during 360 time, it is, you know, uh, can you do my 360? You're junior to me, but like you say, you're my mate. We go down to the pub every day. That needs to be called out. Because that actually perpetuates clubs, people, mm. uh, and diverse cultures. And frankly, what happens is it feels really comfortable at the time. It feels great. And actually, then when you don't quite kick on to the next stage or you don't quite perform, you actually, if there is an underlying issue or actually where there's a strength that people haven't seen, mm. you haven't got a fair picture of yourself. You're deluded. Yeah, and the right word for it escapes me, but there is a a certain amount of openness and appreciation for that process that you need to do that. And actually, they're... and it's not easy. Let's be clear. If you ask or encourage more feedback, mm. it is harder. And if you're, if you've been brought up and many of us have, because we're frankly, we're high performing in many ways and I'm not being arrogant, but you know, on mm. any measure, you tend to be quite high performing. 
if you do it, it's you you will be surprised. There'll be moments where you feel, oh, really? And so it's not just a case of ticking a box and doing the process, getting it, and then just carrying on. There'll be moments where you go, geez, wow, did I really do that? I remember once where I thought I'd given some great coaching to somebody in the team, but actually she said, you know what? It wasn't coaching. You were telling me what to do. And I didn't need to be told. I just wanted a bit of somebody to listen. So actually the, the biggest shock was firstly how I made her feel. But secondly, it was actually what she wanted and valued was very different from what I thought I was giving. At the time, I was really disappointed in myself. I was actually quite upset by it. But I was really pleased that she could tell me. So I want to turn to, because I think we could talk about feedback all day, and I'd love to. I'm just, I'm very conscious you don't have all day. And I want to turn to something that is as much for interest for me as it is for a whole number of people in the industry. And, and that is around actually making partner in a big four firm. So my consulting career has been in the SME space in terms of consulting firms. And I was I was talking to a partner from a, a mid-sized firm yesterday and told him I was interviewing someone from PwC. And he said, Nick, I'd love to know actually how you make partner at a big firm, because the perception is, I guess it's different. And I've not been a partner in either, so I can't compare. But for those who are with ambitions to make partner, what are the things they should be putting in place during those early parts of their career to set themselves up for a success if they wanted to become a PwC partner? That's a really great question. I'm not, I've not been a partner in another organization, although I know, I know a number in small niche specialist consultancies. I think people accentuate the differences. So when they say big four, I, don't, I mean, we are part of the big four, but that's one label. I know we're a much bigger organization. I, st- I think there's more commonality in the skills to get there than the differences. It's not some radical black box. But <laughs> the sort of things that come to mind are, firstly, I sort of think there is doing the basics really well. So mm. there's something about doing your day job. So a lot of people think, oh, I need to go and do progress. I need to sell lots of work. Well, the best way to vertical on a sell is do amazing work and be a great person because people want to work with you. So something about whatever the doing the basics is from analytics to pre- pre- presenting to writing well, it's one of the big gaps in many people do not write well enough in many consultancies, especially those who are more academic. I've got a couple of degrees. Sometimes the more academic people actually struggle to articulate both verbally and writing their skills. It's one, again, one of my hobby horses. So something about doing the basics. There's something about you really using your networks. People have amazing networks of people inside, outside organizations, from universities, from internships and so on. And you ask them to map it and then use it. Oh, I didn't realize I knew somebody. <laughs> and these are the people who will be potential clients in the future. Mm. So networks, keeping them fresh, using them, and actually having a plan. Thirdly, there's something about having a learning capacity. The market will change. Things go in and out of, as I said earlier, Vogue. Somebody can actually firstly have the antennae to work that out as opposed to saying but I'm really good at x if that x isn't in demand you're wasting your time so I see a lot of people stagnate at certain stages not because they're not capable energetic driven but they haven't matched supply and demand on that sorry I just want to get your take on that supply and demand point how much should people be chasing the latest industry trend versus trying to look ahead so instead of should they be going right everyone wants a bit of blockchain right now, I'm going to become a blockchain SME? Or should they be thinking, I've got five years till I make partner, where do I think the world's moving so I can catch that wave? Yeah, I'm going to do a consultant trick, which you're going to hate, which is that you need to do both. Uh, what I mean by that is if, there is, if there is a wave of genuine interest and value, so blockchain is of interest, and there are quite a lot of experiments going on, 
and we are doing quite a lot of work in that space. Is it a big business for any consulting firm? No, it's not, mm. unless I'm mistaken. No. But so you want to be, if there is a genuine way of interest and value, and you can tap into and do something yourself distinctive, then you should go for it. But don't get sucked into something so immersed that actually once it's finished or sort of run out of steam, you haven't got an eye for the future. One of the things that I've struggled with, and I would, if I was self-critical, and I am quite self-critical, which I think is healthy to some degree and sometimes unhealthy, is I've been more of the sort of vanguard of certain things. So the thing I'm some of the most I'm, I'm most proud of is spotting an industry trend or thinking there's an analogy from one market or an industry to mm. another. So I've you know gone from media to health, and then I went to water, and so on. As they went through different periods of reform, you have to make sure that you're not too far ahead, because then it's like, oh, that's really clever and interesting. But if there isn't value you can produce on the back of it, I frankly make money and build businesses from. You're like, oh, you're like the futurist. Similarly, if you're so, just to emphasise the point, if you're so in the weeds where there's so many people doing the same thing, you can't show you're distinctive. But it comes back to value. You have to show that there's value. And that's the thing in, in consulting where if you're thinking about making partner, the things we look for are learning capacity. I said that. Something distinctive and new. That may be style, background, experience, where you're adding something to the partnership. Ultimately, you have to build a business. So it's not just running projects. That's one mm. big distinction from it. Sort of project to practice is a shift. And then it's where you're... In terms of your values, you are exemplary. And that could be around how you lead teams, how you present, where people think, hey, you are actually a role model. So we look, there are certain criteria we look at, but it's not radically different from smaller organizations. I think there are certain givens, though, is if you are working in an organization of this scope in terms of industries and specialisms, you sort of have to work within, the, within that system. So there is a bias towards collaboration. There is a bias towards solving problems through a diversity of lenses, as I've said, whereas there are quite a few boutiques where actually it's a you take the order, you do it yourself, and you're the expert. Mm. We have experts, by the way, many of them. But um, it's not as though I get a phone call, I do the project, I get paid on that on that basis. Mm. It's more of a pooling. And I think you have to make a bit of a choice. Are you somebody who wants to be really good in those ways and then actually work with other people, or do you effectively want to have your own P&L? really useful and yeah i think it's interesting your your insight that actually the might be slightly bigger but the the challenge is the types I mean, it comes back to what you said almost at the start that people are much more similar than they are different we're a collection of net i would say we're a collection of networks and so and there's this big sort of myth about any big consultancy which is oh well it's a soft padding you know if you have a bit of a bad year then there is a you know it doesn't matter because you're such a big organization there's lots of money sloshing around let's be clear there is a support network and we have we take portfolio choices where somewhere they're really hot areas some which are nascent and perhaps it's harder to do that in some of the some of the smaller entities at the same time we're a high performing culture so mm. it's not a case of you can just you know, loll around if if you're not you know if you're not being productive and so forth that's a, that is quite a myth yeah um, but you are in, you are in a networked organization and so there is an internal market and then there's the external market the answer to this may just be those who don't follow that advice. But are there any commonalities among those who get close but not there? So I'm thinking senior manager, director level, who they plateau and just to make it clear, not by choice. It's not someone who said, I love project delivery and I want to sit here for the rest of my life. But actually, they had the ambition or you perceive the ambition, but they just they haven't made it for whatever reason. Are there any commonalities among that group? 
I think there are. There's there's something about they may not have generated some things that are genuinely additive or incremental. So they are, to your point, they will have been running programs very successfully, projects very successfully, clients would have loved them. But then you say, what's the next version of that? What's the next business? And either by inclination or just ability, it's like that entrepreneurial edge doesn't come through. Secondly, that point about bringing people with them and actually, if you like, seeding the next generation. It's not they don't like it, but their view is, I'm really interested in the topic and I want to master that topic. Well, you have to sort of master that topic and build the business of the future. And the other thing I'd call out is there's something around distinctiveness. So have they have they sort of you know turned heads where people are saying, you know what, she or he is they've really got a new take on this, or wow, they've 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 really thought through how we approach that topic in a completely new way. So I did say we would come back to it, and actually, there your point around the commonality of those that don't quite make it that that distinctiveness because I think there's whether you call it personal brand, whether you call it distinctiveness, whether you call it defining yourself. What challenges do people face in a larger organization, and, and correct me if this is is not a challenge, but having worked in a smaller organization, it's very, you can build a brand of you because it, you can get around more people, it's, yeah. it's easier. When you're working in a global organization, you know, I'm a manager in PwC. How do I build a brand, and let's just focus on internal brand for now, that lets others know I exist more than just I'm a manager in yeah. a practice? I think your social media expert, your social media and personal branding expert could tell more, more than me. But your premise, I think, is a really good one, which is I think in some small organization, by necessity, you have to either because in some cases the brand's amazingly strong, but in some cases it's not as strong as perhaps a larger firm, the network's not as strong. You have to put yourself out there more. And I think one of the things I see in across all levels in, in the large consultancies, including our own, is people don't ignore their own personal brand but they sort of assume that they get lifted up by the rest of the organization but the challenge is many of our clients are buying now by individual names not by corporate brand not just because you're grade or background and so it's like you say to people how do you express yourselves and remember branding comes in many different forms the way you sort of interact in a meeting how you dress how you talk how you come across to actually I mean, the defaults around social media platforms and Google search, every single client before you meet, not every single client, but I get it happens more and more. They are Google searching your name before you get there if you haven't met them before. And if you ask then the consultant to say, right, so tell me, how's, how's, your, how's your profile online? Oh, that's a good point. So it's, it's not like it's a cool thing to do. I think it's a business necessity. And frankly, there's, it's a bit like, Certain skills like data science or data analytics, they're so much more important than they were perhaps a few years ago. That becomes like a core capability, managing your own brand, because frankly, you are a business. You're, you know, you're your own asset. And the other thing is, if you don't, firstly, people won't pull you in. Secondly, you'll probably lose out on opportunities and you'll probably get a bit frustrated. You say, well, I'm really good at this. It's like, well, nobody knows about it. Then what? You just expect them to just to find you? A bit like websites, right? Or online presence. People, you have to push people. You have to create vivid images. You have to create things that people want to experience and use rather than saying, you know what, I'm working in a big firm. I've got one or two degrees. I've got this expert. I'm amazing. It's like, well, there are lots of amazing people. To that point around, in fact, let's start there, of the trend you highlighted of clients buying people, not badges. Because I think there's a perception outside of the big four that people buy the badge. Not saying the people inside, you know, the people inside, I'm sure, are, 
equal quality, but the clients like the badge. You know, it's the old, um, no one ever got fired for hiring IBM. Let's, yeah, let's be clear, the, 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 the brand and the badge, and we're very proud of our, you know, our, you know, our brand, is still really important. It's the trust, it's the integrity, it's the quality over many, many decades. What I'm saying is that the personal brand is now more important. It's not like an either-or. And there'll be certain products or environments or certain services that you associate certain brands with. But it's not, I think it's rare in my experience where people say, okay, just give me a team, like an anonymous team. They want to see, they want to meet them. They want to get to know, they'll, they'll, they'll diligence them far more than before. Because firstly, there's a, there's a squeeze on spend in many organizations. They're putting more of their own risk and they want to make sure that they're going to make, get the team that really delivers. And thirdly, again, consultancies change from being a caricature a little bit. We have a problem. We throw it out to you. You go in away in sort of in some sort of dark place and then flick out some rep- report and then give it back mm. to us. To there's a lot more co-development, co-creation, and those are meaningful words. They're not good words. Hence, you want to basically work with people you like. How have you gone on that journey? So I, I, I you know, prior to this interview, researched your background. You're very active on Twitter. You do quite a bit on LinkedIn. What impact have you seen? from colleagues or clients so i do it because i sort of enjoy it so i get a lot of information stimulus learning from from those platforms from other people and frankly you can do it in a sort of more snackable way secondly it's just a really competitive market right so there's something about trying to carve out a little bit of space for yourself that's a bit probably a bit of necessity and thirdly having spent some time out of out of work looking after my family sorry i look after my family that sounds really patronizing isn't it spending more time with my family Mm. given my son's challenges you have to rebuild. You are you are forgotten really quickly. So I would say I've sort of ramped up my efforts to say, hey, actually, um, this is what I'm good at. This is what I enjoy. Uh, that was one of the big shocks stepping out for nine months. It's a bubble. This world is a bubble. It's it's often a fun bubble. If you can have a fun bubble, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. But you are forgotten. I, I still struggle with that. Now, maybe because people were sensitive to my situation, they didn't reach out, whomever that is. But like the, you know, the phone stops. The emails stop. I get very few phone calls. And then you realize what life's really about. And so coming back to work, you I guess you want to make sure that you're doing things that you care about, passionate about, and hence you have to sort of create your your space, your brand even more. But probably because you had a bit of space to think about the things you don't want to do. So I'd say as long as you're sharing things that people are interested in or they're passionate about, actually the reaction is very positive. You do get a few people who go, oh, God, look at you. But normally they do that because they're a bit insecure about their own profile. And I don't do it to compete overtly. But you, you, you know, if you put yourself out there, this is a really important thing. If you do put yourself out there on a stage or a platform or a film or a podcast and so on, if you do, some people will like it and love it. Some people won't. You sort of have to get, you know, you're more, you're more naked, as it were. You have to sort of get used to that. And it is a, it's a, it's a dynamic environment. So if somebody disagrees with you, it's not as though you can shut them down. You have to engage in it. I should have said it in the intro to that question, but it, it's, it's probably worth sharing with, with those listening that actually that is how, how we met. So I saw, I can't recall who it was, but someone liked your new podcast, Transformation Talks, which I thoroughly enjoyed the first episode of. And I thought, Thanks. sounds like an interesting guy for my podcast. Let's have a chat. And but then you approached it in a really a nice way. I mean this sincerely, which is the way you approached it was your, your email and or your, your message on LinkedIn was really positive and sort of it's quite fresh, had a nice energy. Whereas, and I think that that energy of how you want to be and how you want to convey yourself has to has to manifest itself. So, if you are 
I, I receive quite a lot of what I call really dry emails or people in dry meetings. So they say to you, I'm really, you know, with a really straight face, straight face either physically in front of yeah. you or I'm really passionate about X, Y, and Z topic. And you could have fooled me. Do you know what I mean? So you have to, that vitality has to come yeah. through. I do regularly see on LinkedIn, someone went around, must have been in the last five years, telling every consulting professional that their LinkedIn job title should be, I am passionate about something. And you do read some of them and you just think, are you really passionate about that? You know, I, I don't want to, as soon as you say something, you offend a group. But let's say, you know, I'm passionate about stapling. Are you really passionate about stapling? Or is that... I think my... my be careful because what you're passionate about versus other people, there's lots of stereotypes. So they may be. And if they are genuinely about stapling, then <laughs> let them do it. If they're not, it's really obvious. And I think and that's, that's, the, that's, that's my thing. point, is there are a lot of people, to I think your words, who are who feel incongruous with it. So it's, it, and I, you know, I, I, I do have a habit on this podcast of going over the top to try and to make the point to bring it back to the spectrum of one end or the other. But it's exactly that point of, I look at many people's profiles and it doesn't look like they're particularly passionate about stapling. But if you are, you know, if you run whoever it is that makes staples and staples, you probably are. And that Again, that's is, about congruence and coherence between what you say versus how you express yourself. It, exactly. And it comes back to what we were talking about actually around the, how do you show your true self at work? How do you make time for things you're passionate about? How did you find, so you came back to work and you're regularly posting on Twitter. So I assume you're either on your phone or you're on, you've got your laptop and people will walk past and they'll see, you know, well, David's on Twitter again, David's on LinkedIn. Have you ever had any challenge or you know, has anyone ever said to you, maybe just you're spending a little long on Twitter? You know, is there, I guess the, the reason I'm asking that is if you're a, if you're a more junior person and you're thinking, oh, I buy this, you know, I've grown up with Facebook, et cetera. I know the power of this, but I don't want to be seen by the partner on Twitter and LinkedIn. Comes back to the point around being busy, really. Have you had any challenges? No, no because they, I think they are all relevant to what I do at work in some mm. shape or form or how I think and believe. I also don't do that many. They, so I'm not like 10 times a day. I do them in certain parts of the day. I'm not as disciplined as I'd like to be, but I'm not like every five minutes looking and checking and so on. So mm. I'm... Uh, um, I think secondly, we don't really work in that environment. And if we, I don't really want to work in an environment where if, I work in a trust, I start with trust. And if people are spending a bit of time, if they're reading a book, having their lunch, for example, or doing something else, then great. I'm, I'm not saying everybody thinks that way, but there's something about giving people the, the space and the trust to work in the way they want. Now, if they're, if they're doing it for all afternoon, then that's, that's a different matter. Yeah. But no, that's, no, I haven't been called out. But hey, if they do want to call it out, we'll have a conversation. Why not? And it's, it's great to hear. And I, I guess I'm thinking, is this a message you share with you, know, you share with your junior team that you should be building this? What have you done with your LinkedIn? Those sort of things. Is that a conversation that actually should be forming part of the counseling process or the guidance process nowadays? Or is it, is it still too early for that? No, no, it's definitely not too early. I mean, it's been going on for years. I mean, I haven't mm. worked in this, sort of, this industry for many years. And I have to say there are too many people who work in the industry who don't have any or not enough sort of presence. So it's sort of like saying you're, you know, you're, you're working in an industry of great products and you don't actually know the product very well. I, I, I don't think that works, by the way. Mm. It doesn't mean you have to be addicted. No, we have, there, we have, there are sessions we run and colleagues like my, Andy Woodfield, who's one of mm. our most sort of prolific and passionate and genuinely passionate people in this space, he's run various sessions on there and we do it. It's not like a mandatory program, but if there is coaching and support and actually having people who are further up the, sort of the grades, if you like, doing it, sends a massive signal of empowerment. So we've covered a huge amount of ground today, and 
I ask these questions to every one of my guests as a, a wrap-up, and I always find the answers are fascinating for both the similarities and the differences. Now, the first one is about books. You just mentioned it there. I'm an avid reader. A lot of my listeners, talking to someone yesterday who loves these book recommendations, it'd be great to get your take. What are the books that you find yourself recommending or giving to colleagues most often? I'm trying to read more than I, I used to. I think many consultants don't read enough. And there's lots of excuses, but we're often peddling old knowledge, not up to date. And it doesn't always have to be business books. I think there's something, how much are you spending a week genuinely learning new things in lots of forms? And books are one way one way of doing it. But that's, that's a passion of mine. I'm not sure I've got any particularly compelling where you go, wow, I've never heard of that. That's like a limited edition. Two people have read it. It doesn't but, have um, to be. What? But the, um, and I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce his name. Is it Paolo Coelho, the, um, okay. the alchemist? Yeah because I think that's quite a deep and soulful book. I've shared that with some people. Again, not with a message of you must look at page X and that's you, but just to sort of broaden mm. them out a little bit. Clay Christensen's book, I think it's called How Will You Measure Your Life? Yeah. And it's a, it's a pretty easy to read book, but it comes from his own experience having been ill and sort of his reflections on life. And I guess I could associate it with it, one, because we have a passion. I'm a bigger admirer of some of his work. Innovator's Dilemma, which is a classic mm. book on one of the early books on disruption. But secondly, it's just quite vivid and real and practical about looking back and saying, look, you've got to look at the broader aspects of your life and sort of don't become monotracked. And it's a bit grounding. And that's the, a lot of consultants, it's frankly, and myself included, need a bit of grounding sometimes, getting into the real world. The most recent book, and I mean this sincerely, The Alive at Work book by Dan Cable, which, I, which, which you mentioned earlier, I think it's just a beautifully written book. I'm not his agent. Um, beautifully <laughs> written, but it's quite short. There is a movement at the moment around how do we re-energize people at work? How do we work differently and better? It's the sort of the moment issue. And I just think the examples are very vivid and quite practical. And um, and I guess partly because I know know him well, I, I know uh, it sort of comes through in some of the words. So I've mm. shared that. Brilliant. Thank you very much for those recommendations. And last question, and this this is, again, one I ask all of my guests. And, and do take this how you want, because I, I always find the answer to this really useful for me. My listeners find them useful and it's always interesting to get people's takes is you have three people in front of you. One of them is just starting their career. Take that as an apprentice or a graduate. One of them is four to five years into their consulting career, loosely consultant to manager grade. And then one of them is approaching partner. What one piece of advice would you give to each of those three people? I think there's more commonalities and difference just to be a bit different, just to be challenging. One bit of advice. I'll break the rules. I like breaking the rules. Curiosity. Curiosity is, is critical. Curiosity around about yourself, being curious about who you are as a person and the strengths you have. So there's an inner curiosity. And there's a curiosity around what's compelling, what's working, what's whether it's within your clients, your context, the people around you. And that means you have to use all your senses. And what people I find, partly people coming into the business, sometimes they're sort of curious, but they get into one particular area and then they, they forget looking at elsewhere or you get into the middle of your career and you sort of you get stung say oh, i'm really good at this i'm amazing i'm, I'm and you say well okay but there's there's but there's a wave of disruption coming on here or that point earlier about the future and they've lost that curiosity or when they come to partner there's something about it happens rarely but i do see it sometimes in a number of organizations around you think because you've sort of made it that you don't need to keep learning. 
and it's like now you're just sort of sweating the asset. You're just pushing it out, you know, pushing the product and getting out into the out into the market and being really hard and macho and all those things. And it's like you need a bit of that. But the curiosity said, you know what? Actually, there's a new way of doing things. One of the best bits of advice I got was from somebody, partner many years ago. He said to me, at the end of a day or a week, just keep asking yourself, should you be doing that? Should you be doing that? There has to be a better way. Which means you can then move up to go back to the disruption thing. You can then move up the value chain if you like yourself, because you can get somebody else to do something you've done before. You can only do that if you have a learning mind mindset, growth mindset, and a learning capability and a, and a curiosity. So the CQ is as important. So the curiosity quotient is as important as the IQ and EQ that everybody talks about. Fantastic. I think that is a brilliant point to finish for today. So David, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I've yours. really enjoyed this. Me too. If people have heard this and want to find out more about you, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? So um, I have a LinkedIn profile, I have a Twitter account, there's, there's videos I've done and there's contact details on, on those. So uh, Fantastic. Well, I'll put all of those on the show notes um, and all that's left to say is all the best for the rest of the week and enjoy your weekend. Thanks very much, Nick. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb In Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.